English teachers who teach English, featuring Mr. Davis. Song, song of the south, sweet potato pie, and I shut my mouth. Gone, gone with the wind, there ain't nobody looking back again. Cotton on the roadside, cotton in the ditch. We all picked the cotton, but we never got rich. Salutations, students. This is Mr. Davis coming to you from a different time and place. I bet you're wondering right now about my tone of voice. Well, let me tell you. Today we introduce ourselves to the Scarlet Ibis by James Hurst. The Scarlet Ibis takes place in the early 1900s down in South Kekalaki. For those who are uneducated, that means South Carolina. It's a story about brothers, brothers from the same mother. And we learn about a little boy named Doodle. Doodle's a special young tyke who has struggles and his brother seems to find it difficult to help him become, as he says, air quotes, normal. Brother, who goes by the name Brother, is a difficult being, and he just wants his brother to fight and box and run and jump and skip. But Doodle, he can't do that. Why, you say? Because I declare he is handicapped physically. But as I quote, he is all there. Uh, you will learn that about Doodle in the story. But first, before we jump into our time machine and go back to the Great Depression, let's hear a haiku from our friend, Mr. Cheatham. Mr. Cheatham's Haiku Corner. The ocean is big. And also, it is pretty, pretty freaking wet. Mr. Cheatham's Haiku Corner, brought to you by Physics. For every action, there's an opposite but equal reaction. Well, wasn't that just a delightful treat from our friend Mr. Cheatham? God bless him and everything that he does, that squirrely little fella. Without further ado, I present to you The Scarlet Ibis by James Hurst, read by yours truly, Mr. Davis. The Scarlet Ibis by James Hurst. the clove of seasons. Summer was dead, but autumn had not yet been born. That the ibis lit in the bleeding tree. The flower garden was stained with rotting brown magnolia petals, and iron weeds grew rank amid the purple flocks. The five o'clocks by the chimney still marked time, but the oil nest in the elm was untenanted, 
and rocked back and forth like an empty cradle. The last graveyard flowers were blooming, and their smell drifted across the cotton field and through every room of our house, speaking softly the names of our dead. It's strange that all this is still so clear to me now that summer has long since fled and time has had its way. A grindstone stands where the bleeding tree should, just outside the kitchen door. And now if an oriole sings in the elm, the song seems to tie up in the leaves a silvery dust. The flower garden is prim, the house is a gleaming white, and the pale fence across the yard stands straight and spruce. But sometimes, like right now, as I sit in the cool green draped parlor, the grindstone begins to turn, and time with all its changes is ground away, and I remember Doodle. Doodle was just about the craziest brother a boy ever had. Of course, he wasn't a crazy crazy like old Miss Leedy, who was in love with President Wilson and wrote him a letter every day. But it was a nice crazy, like someone you meet in your dreams. He was born when I was six and was, from the outset, a disappointment. He seemed all ahead with a tiny body which was red and shriveled like an old man's. Everybody thought he was gonna die, except everybody except Aunt Nisi who had delivered him. She said he would live because he was born in a call and calls were made from Jesus' nightgown. Daddy had Mr. Heath the carpenter build a little mahogany coffin for him, but he didn't die. And when he was three months old, Mama and Daddy decided they might as well name him. They named him William Armstrong, which was like tying a big tail on a small kite. Such a name sounds good only on a tombstone. I thought myself pretty smart at many things, like hold my breath, running, jumping, and climbing the vines of the, in the old woman's swamp. And I wanted more than anything else, someone to race to horsehead landing, someone to box with, someone to perch with on top of the fork of the great pine behind the barn where across the fields and swamps you could see the sea. I wanted a brother, but Mama, crying, told me that even if William Armstrong lived, he would never do these things with me. He might not, she sobbed, even be all there. He might, as long as he lived, lie on the rubber sheet in the center of the bed in the front bedroom where the white mark marcasette curtains billowed out in the afternoon sea breeze rustling like palmetto fronds. It was bad enough having an invalid brother, but having one possibly was not all there was unbearable. So I began to make plans to kill him by smothering him with a pillar. However, one afternoon as I watched him, my head poked between the iron posts at the foot of the bed. He looked straight at me and grinned. I skipped through the rooms down the echoing hall shouting, Mama, he smiled. He's all there. He's all there. And he was. When he was two, if you laid him on his stomach, he began to try to move himself, straining terribly. The doctor said that with his weak heart, this strain would probably kill him. But it didn't. Trembling, he pushed himself up, turning red first, then a soft purple, then finally collapsed back onto the bed like an old, worn-out doll. 
I can still see Mama watching him, her hands pressed tight across her mouth, her eyes wide open, wide and unblinking. But he'd learned to crawl. It was his third winter. And we brought him out of the front bedroom, putting him on the rug before the fireplace. For the first time, he became one of us. As long as he lay all the time in bed, we called him William Armstrong, even though it was formal and sounded as if we were referring to one of our ancestors. But with his creeping around on the deer skin rug and beginning to talk, something had to be done about his name. It was I who renamed him. When he crawled, he crawled backwards as if he were in reverse and couldn't change gears. If you called him, he would turn around as if he were going in the other direction. Then he'd back right up to you to be picked up. Crawling backward made him look like a doodle bug, so I began to call him Doodle. And in time, even Mama and Daddy thought it was a better name than William Armstrong. Only Aunt Niecy disagreed. She said cowl babies should be treated with special respect since they might turn out to be saints. Renaming my brother perhaps was the kindest thing I ever did for him because nobody expects much from someone called Doodle. Although Doodle learned to crawl, he showed no signs of walking and he wasn't idle. He talked so much that we all quit listening to what he said. It was about this time that Daddy built him a go-kart and I had to pull him around. At first, I just paraded him up and down the piazza, but then he started crying to be taken out into the yard and it ended up by my having to lug him wherever I went. If I so much as picked up my cap, he started crying to go with me and Mama would call me from wherever she was. Take Doodle with you. He was a burden in many ways. The doctor had said that he mustn't get too excited, too hot, too cold, or too tired, and that he must always be treated gently. A long list of don'ts went with him, all of which I ignored once we got out of the house. To discourage his coming with me, I'd run him across the ends of the cotton rows and careen him around corners on two wheels. Sometimes I accidentally turned him over, but he never told Mama. His skin was very sensitive, and he had to wear a big straw hat wherever he went out. When he got, when the going got rough and he had to cling onto the sides of the go-kart, the hat slipped all the way over his ears. He was a sight. Finally, I could see I was licked. Doodle was my brother, and he was going to cling to me forever, no matter what I did. So I dragged him across the burning cotton field to share with him the only beauty I knew, Old Woman Swamp. I pulled the go-kart through the sawtooth fern down into the green dimness where the palmetto fawns whispered by the stream. I lifted him out and set him down on the soft rubber grass beside a tall pine. His eyes were round with wonder as he gazed about him and his little hands began to stroke the rubber grass. Then he began to cry. For heaven's sake, what's the matter? I asked annoyed. It's so pretty, he said. So pretty, pretty, pretty. After that day, Doodle and I often went down into Old Woman's Swamp. I would gather wildflowers, wild violets, honeysuckle, yellow jasmine, snake flowers, and water lilies 
and with the wiregrass we'd weave them into necklaces and crowns. We'd bedeck ourselves with our handiwork and loll about thus beautified beyond the touch of the everyday world. Then when the slanted rays of the sun burned orange in the tops of the pines, we'd drop our jewels into the stream and watch them float away toward the sea. There is within me, and with sadness I have watched it in others, a knot of cruelty borne by the stream of love. Much as our blood sometimes bears the seed of our destruction, and at times I was mean to doodle. One day I took him up to the barn loft and showed him his casket, telling him how we all believed he would die. It was covered with a film of Paris green sprinkled to kill the rats and screech owls had built a nest inside of it. Doodle studied the mahogany box for a long time and said, It's not mine. It is, I said, and before I help you down from the loft, you're going to have to touch it. I won't touch it, he says sullenly. Then I'll leave you here by yourself, I threatened, and, I, and made it as if I were going down. Doodle was frightened of being left. Don't leave me, brother, he cried, and he leaned toward the coffin. His hand, trembling, reached out, and when he touched the casket, he screamed. A screech owl flapped out of the box into our faces, scaring us and covering us with Paris green. Doodle was paralyzed. So I put him on my shoulders and carried him down the ladder, and even when we were outside in the bright sunshine, he, cling he clung to me, crying, Don't leave me! Don't leave me! When Doodle was five years old, I was embarrassed at having a brother of that age who couldn't walk, so I set out to teach him. We were down in the old woman's swamp, and the spring and the sick sweet smell of bay flowers hung everywhere like a mournful song. I'm going to teach you to walk, Doodle, I said. He was sitting comfortably on the soft grass, leaning back against the pine. Why? he asked. I hadn't expected such an answer. So I don't have to haul you around all the time. I can't walk, brother, he said. Who says so? I demanded. Mama, the doctor, everybody. Oh, you can walk, I said, and I took him by the arms and stood him up. He collapsed onto the grass like a half-empty flower sack. It was as if he had no bones in his little legs. Don't hurt me, brother, he warned. Shut up, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm going to teach you to walk. I heaved him up again, and again he collapsed. This time he did not lift his face up out of the rubber grafts. I just can't do it. Let's make honeysuckle reeves. Oh, yes you can, doodle, I said. All you gotta do is try. Now come on. Uh, and I hauled him up once more. It seemed so hopeless from the beginning that it's a miracle I didn't give up. But all of this must have something or someone to be proud of, and Doodle had become mine. I did not know then that pride is a wonderful, terrible thing, a seed that bears two vines, life and death. Every day that summer we went to the pine beside the stream of Old Woman Swamp and I put him on his feet at least a hundred times each afternoon. Occasionally I too became discouraged because it didn't seem as if he was trying and I would say, Doodle, don't you want to learn to walk? He'd nod his head and I'd say, well if you don't keep trying you'll never learn. 
Then I'd paint for him a picture of us as old men, white-haired, him along a white beard, and me still pulling him around in the go-kart. This never failed to make him try again. Finally, one day after many weeks of practicing, he stood alone for a few seconds. Then he fell. I grabbed him by in my arms and hugged him, all laughter peeling through the swamp like a ringing bell. Now we knew it could be done. Hope no longer hid in the dark palmetto thicket, but perched like a cardinal in the laced toothbrush tree, brilliantly visible. Yes, yes, I cried, and he cried too, and the grass beneath us was soft, and the smell of the swamp was sweet. With success so imminent, we decided not to tell anyone until he could actually walk. Each day, bearing rain, we snuck, we sneaked into Old Woman Swamp, and by cotton picking time, Doodle was ready to show what he could do. He wasn't able to walk far, but we could no, wait no longer. Keeping a nice secret is hard to do, like holding your breath. We choose to reveal all on October 8th, Doodle's sixth birthday. And four weeks ahead, we mooned around the house, promising everybody a most spectacular surprise. Our niece said that after so much talk, if we produce anything less tremendous than a resurrection, she was going to be disappointed. At breakfast on our chosen day, when Mama, Daddy, and Aunt Niecy were in the dining room, I brought Doodle to the door on the go-kart, just as usual, and had, had them turn their backs, making them cross their hearts and hope to die if they peeked. I helped Doodle up, and when he was standing alone, I let them look. There wasn't a sound as Doodle walked slowly across the room and sat down at his place at the table. Then Mama began to cry and ran over to him, hugging him and kissing him. Daddy hugged him too, so I went to Aunt Nisi, who was thanks praying in the doorway, and began to waltz her around. We danced together quite well until she came down on my big toe with the brogans. Hurt me so badly I thought I was crippled for life. Doodle told them it was I who taught him to walk, so everyone wanted to hug me, and I began to cry. What are you crying for? asked Daddy, but I couldn't answer. They did not know that I did it for myself. That pride, whose slave I was, spoke to me louder than all their voices, and that doodle walked only because I was ashamed of having a crippled brother. Within a few months, doodle learned to walk well, and his go-kart was put up in the barn loft. It's still there, beside his little mahogany coffin. Now, when we roamed off together, resting often, we never turned back until our destination had been reached. And to help pass the time, we took up lying. From the beginning, Doodle was a terrible liar, and then he got me in the, he got me in the habit. Had anyone stopped to listen to us, we would have been sent off to Dick's Hill. My lies were scary, involved and usually pointless, but Doodles were twice as crazy. People in his stories, all had wings and flew wherever they wanted to go. His favorite lie was about a boy named Peter who had a pe pet peacock with a 10-foot tail. Peter wore a golden robe that glittered so brightly that when he walked through the sunflowers, they turned away from the sun to face him. When Peter was ready to go to sleep, the peacock spread his magnificent tail, enfolding the boy gently like a closing go-to-sleep flower.
burying him in the gloriously indorescent rustling vortex. Yes, I admit it. Doodle could beat me lying. Doodle and I spent lots of times thinking about our future. We decided that when we were grown, we'd live in old woman's swamp and pick dog tongue for a living. Beside the stream, he planned we'd build us a house of whispering leaves and the swamp birds would be our chickens. All day, when we weren't gathering dog tongue, we'd swing through the cypresses on the rope vines, and if it rained, we'd huddled beneath an umbrella tree and play stick frog. Mom and Daddy could come and live with us if they wanted to. He even came up with the idea that he could marry Mama and I could marry Daddy. Of course, I wasn't old enough to know what, that this wouldn't work out, but the picture he painted was so beautiful and serene that all I could whisper was, yes, yes. Once I had succeeded in teaching Doodle to walk, I began to believe in my own infallibility, and I prepared a terrific development program for him, unknown to Mama and Daddy, of course. I would teach him to run, to swim, to climb trees, and to fight. He too now believed in my infallibility, so we set the deadline for these accomplishments less than a year away. When it had been decided, Doodle could start school. That winter we didn't make much progress, for I was in school and Doodle suffered one bad cold after another. But when spring came, rich and warm, we raised our sights again. Success lay at the end of summer like a pot of gold and our campaign got off to a good start. On hot days, Doodle and I went down to Horsehead Landing and I gave him swimming lessons or showed him how to row a boat. Sometimes we descended into the cool greenness of Old Woman's Swamp and climbed the rope vines or box scientifically beneath the pine where he had learned to walk. Promise hung about us like the leaves and whenever we looked, ferns unfurled and birds broke into song. That summer, the summer of 1918, was blighted. In May and June there was no rain and the crops withered, curled up, then died under the thirsty sun. One morning in July a hurricane came out of the east, tipping over the oaks in the yard and splitting the limbs of the elm trees. That afternoon it rolled back out of the west blew the fallen oaks around, snapping their roots and tearing them out of the earth like a hawk at the entrails of a chicken. Cotton bowls were wrenched from the stalks and laid like green walnuts in the valleys between the rows, while the cornfield leaned over ununiformly so that the tassels touched the ground. Doodle now followed Daddy out into the cotton field where he stood, shoulders sagging, surveying the ruin. When his chin sank down into his chest, we were frightened and Doodle slipped his hand into mine. Suddenly, Daddy straightened his shoulders, raised a giant knuckly fist, and with a voice that seemed to rumble out of the earth itself, began cursing heaven, hail, the weather, and the Republican Party. Doodle and I prodding each other and giggling, went back to the house knowing that everything would be all right. And during that summer, strange names were heard through the house. Chateau Theory, Amines, the Soisons, and in her blessing at the supper table, Mama once said, And God bless the Pearsons, whose boy Joe was lost at Baloo Wood. So we came to that clove of seasons. School was only a few weeks away, and Doodle was far behind schedule. 
He could barely clear the ground when climbing up the rope vines and his swimming was certainly not passable. We decided to double our efforts to make that last drive and reach our pot of gold. I made him swim until he turned blue and row until he couldn't lift an oar. Wherever we went, I purposely walked fast, and although he kept up, his face turned red and his eyes became glazed. Once he could go no further, so he collapsed to the ground and began to cry. Oh, come on, Doodle, I urged. You can do it. Do you want to be different from everybody else when you start school? Does it make any difference? It certainly does, I said. Now come on, and I helped him up. As we slept through our through dog days, Doodle began to look feverish, and Mama felt his forehead, asking him if he felt ill. At night, he didn't sleep well, and sometimes he had nightmares, crying out until I touched him, and he said, Wake up, Doodle. Wake up. It was Saturday noon, just a few days before school was about to start. I should have left already admitted defeat, but my pride wouldn't let me. The excitement of our program had now been gone for weeks, but still we kept on with tired dogness. It was too late to turn back, for we both wandered too far into a net of expectations and had left no crumbs behind. Daddy, Mama Doodle and I were seated at the dining room table having lunch. It was a hot day with all the windows and doors open in case a breeze should come. In the kitchen, Aunt Nisi was humming softly after this long silence, Daddy spoke. It's so calm. I wouldn't be surprised if we had another storm this afternoon. I haven't heard a rain frog, said Mama, who believed in signs as she served the bread around the table. I did, declared Doodle. Down in the swamp. He didn't, I said contrarily. You did, eh? said Daddy, ignoring my denial. I certainly did, Doodle reiterated, scowling at me over the top of the iced tea glass, and we were quiet again. Suddenly, from out in the yard came a strange croaking noise. Doodle stopped eating, with a piece of bread poised ready for his mouth. His eyes popped around like two blue buttons. What's that? he whispered. I jumped up, knocking over my chair, and had reached the door when Mama called, Pick up the chair and sit down again, and say excuse me. By the time I had done this, Doodle had excused himself and had slipped out into the yard. He was looking up into the bleeding tree. It's a great big red bird, he called. The bird croaked loudly again, and Mama and Daddy came out into the yard. We shaded our eyes with our hands against the hazy glare of the sun and peered up through the sealed leaves. On the topmost branch, a bird the size of a chicken with scarlet feathers and long legs were perched precariously. Its wings were hung down loosely, and as we watched, a feather dropped away and floated slowly down through the green leaves. It's not even frightened of us, Mama said. It looks tired. Daddy added, or maybe sick. Doodle's hands were clasped at his throat, and I had never seen him stand still so long. What is it? he asked. Daddy shook his head. I don't know. Maybe it's a 
At that moment, the bird began to flutter and the wings were uncoordinated and amid much flapping and a spray of flying feathers it tumbled down, bumping through the limbs of the bleeding tree and landing at our feet with a thud. Its long, graceful neck jerked twice into a nest, then straightened out, and the bird was still. A white veil came over the eyes and long, white beak unhinged. His legs were even crossed, and its claw-like feet were delicately curved at rest. Even death did not mar its grace, for it lay on the earth like a broken vase of red flowers, and we stood around it, awed by its exotic beauty. It's dead, Mama said. What is it? Doodle replied. Go and bring me the bird book, said Daddy. I ran into the house and brought back the bird book as we watched Daddy thumb through his pages. It's a scarlet ibis, he said, pointing at a picture. It it lives in the tropics South America to Florida. The storm must have brought it here. Sadly, we all looked back at the bird. A scarlet ibis? How many miles it had traveled to die like this in our yard beneath the bleeding tree? Let's finish lunch, Mama said, nudging us back towards the dining room. I'm not hungry, said Doodle, and he knelt down beside the ibis. We got peach cobbler for dessert, Mama tempted the doorway. Doodle remained kneeling. I'm going to bury him. Don't you dare touch him, Mama warned. There's no telling what disease he might have. All right, said Doodle. I won't. Daddy, Mama, and I went back to the dining room table, but we watched Doodle through the open door. He took out a piece of string from his pocket and, without touching the eyeless, Ibis looped one end around its neck. Slowly, while singing softly, shall we gather at the river. He carried the bird around to the front yard and dug a hole in the flower garden next to the petunia bed. Now we were watching him through the front window, but he didn't know it. His awkwardness at digging the hole with the shovel whose handle was twice as long as he was made us laugh, and we covered our mouths with our hands so he wouldn't hear. When Doodle came into the dining room, he found us seriously eating our cobbler. He was pale and lingered just inside the screen door. Did you get the scarlet ibis bird? asked Daddy. Doodle didn't speak but nodded his head. Go wash your hands and then you can have some peach cobbler, said Mama. I'm not hungry, he said. Dead birds are bad luck, said Aunt Nisi, poking at her head from the kitchen door. Specifically, red dead birds. As soon as I had finished eating, Doodle and I hurried off to Horsehead Landing. Time was short. Doodle still had a long way to go as if he were going to keep up with the other boys when he started school. The sun, gilded with the yellow cast of autumn, still burned fiercely, but the dark green woods through which we passed were shady and cool. When we reached the landing, Doodle said he was too tired to swim, so we got into a skiff and floated down the creek with the tide. Far off in the marsh, a rail was scolding, and over on the beach, locusts were singing in the myrtle trees. Doodle did not speak and kept his head turned away, letting one hand trail limply in the water. After we had drifted a long way, I put the oars in place and made Doodle row back against the tide. Black clouds began to gather in the southwest, and he kept watching them, trying to pull the oars a little faster. 
when we reached Horsehead Land and lightning was playing across half the sky and the thunder rolled out, hiding even the sound of the sea. The sun disappeared and darkness descended almost like night. Flocks of marsh crows flew by, heading inland to their roosting trees, and two egrets squawking arose from the oyster rock shallows and careened away. Doodle was both tired and frightened, and when he stepped from the skiff, he collapsed onto the mud, sending an armada of fiddler crabs rustling off into the marsh grass. I helped him up, and as he wiped the mud from off his trousers, he smiled at me ashamedly. He had failed, and we both knew it. So we started back home, racing the storm. We never spoke. What are the words that can solder a cracked pipe? But I knew he was watching me, watching for a sign of mercy. The lightning was near now, and from fear, he walked so close behind me, he kept stepping on my heels. The faster I walked, the faster he walked. So I began to run. The rain was coming, roaring through the pines, and then, like a bursting Roman candle, a gum tree ahead of us was shattered by a bolt of lightning. When the deafening peal of thunder had died, and in the moment before the rain arrived, I heard Doodle, who had fallen behind, cry out, Brother, brother, don't leave me! Don't leave me! The knowledge that Doodle's and my plans had come to naught was bitter and that streak of cruelty within me awakened. I ran as fast as I could, leaving him far behind with a wall of rain dividing us. The drops stung my face like nettles and the wind flared the wet, glistening leaves of the bordering trees. Soon I could hear his voice no more. I hadn't run too far before I became tired and the flood of childish spite evidenced as well. I stopped and waited for Doodle. The sound of rain was everywhere, but the wind had died and it fell straight down in parallel paths like ropes hanging from the sky. As I waited, I peered through the downpour, but no one came. Finally, I went back and found him huddled beneath a red, nightshade bush beside the road. He was sitting on the ground, his face buried in his arms, which were resting on his drawn-up knees. Let's go, Doodle, I said. He didn't answer. So I placed my hand on his forehead and lifted his head. Limply, he fell backwards onto the earth. He had been bleeding from the mouth and his neck and the front of his shirt were steamed a brilliant red. Doodle? Doodle? I cried, shaking him, but there was no answer but the ropey rain. He laid very awkwardly with his head thrown far back, making his vermilion neck appear unusually long and slim. His little legs, bent sharply at the knees, had never before seemed so fragile, so thin. I began to weep, and the tear-blurred vision in red before me looked very familiar. Doodle! I screamed above the pouring storm and threw my body down to the earth above his. For a long, long time, it seemed forever, I laid there crying, sheltering my fallen Scarlet Ibis from the Heresy of Rain. The End
Oh my goodness. It tears at my heart every time I hear that story of that poor boy doodle. And sometimes I just can't contain myself. But I declare that this is a tragedy. And that no person should be treated the way Doodle was treated. Could you not tell the voice of regret in that young man's tone as he told us the story of William, the call baby? Man, every time. Every time. Well, folks, this is the end of our newest episode of English Teachers Who Teach English. Our next episode will feature that Richmond boy, Edgar, as he tries to scare us for Halloween. He's a sickly young man, pale as the night it is. That is a full moon, because the nights really aren't that pale. They're quite dark, according to Rainsford, my good friend from my hunting expeditions. He's a New York boy, a singer Rainsford. Maybe you've heard of him, but next time we will hear from Edgar. Uh, Mr. Poe will entertain us with one of his scary stories i hope you guys enjoy sweet tea on my behalf or even a nice cold coca-cola sweet dixie champagne have a good day everybody this is mr davis signing off for english teachers who teach english But we were so poor that we couldn't tell Cotton was short and the weeds were tall But Mr. Roosevelt are gonna save us all The only thing we have to fear is Well, Mama got sick and Daddy got down The county got the farm and they moved to town Papa got a job with a TVA He bought a washing machine and then a Chevrolet Sing it Song, song of the South Sweet potato pie and I shut my mouth